This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. at Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree, coming to you from Miami, uh, attending the Bitcoin Miami conference this week. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Second half of the program will be joined by Kevin Flanagan, one of my colleagues at, at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Kevin and I are rich representatives for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel, the supervisor Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really special show, a number of great guests talking with uh, some return friends of the program. Brian Westbury of First Trust Advisors, who's got a lot of big picture views on the markets, the economy. We talk with uh, currency strategists, fixed income strategists on the second half with Kevin and Brent Donnelly. Uh, but Professor, uh, a little bit of volatility back, some of the Fed minutes. How's your response to what's been, been happening this week? Well, again, it should be no surprise uh, had you you've been following our programs. That's exactly what we've been saying. Um, I mean, it started out with uh, Leo Brainerd, uh, who is known as a dove, you know, saying, basically saying that 50 basis points uh, would be necessary. Um, it was uh, followed by the minutes, uh, which were pretty much as expected. But the wording was such that um, there seemed to be virtually no doves. In fact, I think that on CNBC this morning, uh, Steve Leesman mentioned that only uh, Charles Evans from Chicago was maybe maybe dovish, um, uh, but but uh, I think uh, it, it seals the the case for uh, the fifty point increase. Um, and then of course we have Board, who is on the hawkish side, and he said that by end of the year we should be at three percent or higher on our uh, on our uh, Fed funds rate. Uh, the big announcement, of course, I mean, next week is the CPI uh, on Tuesday morning. Um, I think that's going to be really important because that's the last uh, uh, monthly announcement before the uh, the, the Fed meeting. Um, uh, the expectation is overall, it's, uh, you know, because of the tremendous energy increases, the 1.2% month over month, which would be one of the largest in 40 or 50 years. However, there's still an expectation that the uh, ex-food and energy is only going to be a half a percent. Um, that's going to be watched more closely because we know about the volatility of the energy sector. So um, that's what I would walk, uh, look at. I, I think it might come in higher, and if it does, that will reinforce the, um, uh, the, the hawkish uh, attitude of, of the Fed. Uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, no matter really what it comes in, the, the, the CPI is going to have a handle of 8%. The expectation overall is going to be an 8.4% increase. That'll get headlines, again, not for 40 years. Then, of course, on the following day, we have the producer price index. Um, again, almost the same expectation, 1.1 for the overall and 0.5 for the ex-food and energy and ex-food and trade. We'll see again uh, how um, how that plays out. Uh, of course, what we've seen is in reaction to the Fed minutes and the comments by the Fed governors and uh, the president, a, a, a dramatic upward move in in uh, in those long rates. Uh, no longer is the curve inverted. Actually, um, now we have a, almost a 20 basis point uh, uh, gap between the 10 year and uh, the two year. Uh, this morning, the 10-year hit 272, which um, it's now at 269, but, uh, I mean, moved up dramatically, um, uh, and, uh, and and even the tips has moved up to minus 17 basis points. I mean, that's the highest it's been for, what, three years uh, at least. Um, and, and, again, what, what that do, does is 
move shift con- continue the shift towards the uh, stocks with cash flows that are near term away from those cash flows that are long term. That's why NASDAQ had a bad week, but the Dow did not. <laughs> um, um, and uh, yeah, value had a very good week. Now, uh, you know, the, for two or three weeks, we had a big bounce off by tech. And tech, big tech is not expensive, really. I mean, a lot of big tech is, go- is going for 22, 23 times forecast earnings, which given their extra growth is not all that much. But um, uh, uh, people want the cash flows. They want the dividends. You see the utilities going up. You see the health care going up. I mean, that rotation that we've talked about for over a year um, is is uh, certainly proceeding at, at a rapid rate. Let me just mention, I am not one of those that sees a recession. There was one, one of the reasons for the, some of the weakness in the value was uh, the cyclical stocks were worried about the inverted curve in the recession. Now, uh, I uh, we've talked about the fact that it has to invert an awful lot for there to really be a recession. I see no recession this year. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, analysts are raising their year estimates of 2022 S&P earnings, um, which is rare because normally as we move through the year, there's a general lowering of those. So um, uh, so far, there there really is a, a little diminution in and those rates. Now, 2023 is a different story. Obviously, coming up, um, maybe toward the middle or the end of the year, we'll have a big slowdown. It's too early to tell. By the way, uh, one should mention that the quarter we just ended is going to be near zero GDP. <laughs> of course, negative two quarters negative GDP is the rule of thumb in recession. It's not the official recession um, uh, definition. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to have a slow quarter. So, I mean, the first quarter, because of Omicron, was virtually zero growth. And I think we're bouncing back in the second quarter. I don't know what some of the early estimates are, or more towards three or four. But uh, so there will be, uh, you know, the, the, the increases uh, year over year on the first quarter are going to be much more modest than they've been in the past because of uh, the slowdown. If there's like a where the these surging rates are going, you know, a lot of people are saying the housing market with mortgage rates going to five percent uh, and above, and 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 that being one of the issues, and and sort of the commodity prices obviously infringing on people's wallets. Is that what is that one of the key risks you think for the economy next year? How do you think of what is the the slowdown? Well, uh, where it let emanates, me also from? mention, and 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 this this is disturbing. Natural gas is up. To 660 now. Now, natural gas has, you know, most of homes have now moved to natural gas because of the cheap gas, and its price has really doubled in uh, really in the last three months. Now, part of it is because we're going to be sending some of it abroad to Europe, where the price is ten times higher than it is in the U.S. But this is still twice as high as it was last year. This could definitely be a slowdown. Uh, mortgage rates for people who buy new houses. Uh, I think the market's. I, I think housing is going to remain strong. I mean, I, I know four and three quarters heading towards five, and it's higher than it's been. But um, uh, we who remember the uh, pre- previous inflationary times would have regarded five percent as still relatively low. But uh, you know, clearly, um, I mean, the, the 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 higher energy prices, the higher mortgage prices, um, uh, and higher interest rates in general. Um, uh, are things that are going to slow down uh, the uh, economy, and hopefully, we will see that money supply growth slow down. Let me also mention: um, um, I, I am not impressed with the uh, quantitative tightening, the reduction of the balance sheet. I think I mentioned this before, but now we've got the exact data. It's going to be 95 billion a month. That's still a drop in the bucket. I mean, after a year, you get one trillion. Uh, it makes no sense to me. We added four trillion to the balance sheet of the Fed between March to 2020 and now. The inflation is now. The Fed predicts that by a year from now, you know, we should be out of the worst inflation. Well, by a year from now we'll only reduce the balance sheet by one quarter of what we increased it. 
we should be reducing, of course, we should have reduced the balance sheet much earlier, and maybe they just don't want to shock the market, but this is way too slow. The Fed, the banks have excess reserves that are nearing $2 trillion before we even impinge on their excess reserve desires. Uh, um, you know, it's going to be two years. So, um, yeah, that is going to sell bonds into the marketplace. It has to be absorbed by individuals. I do understand that, but... Certainly, it is no constraint on bank lending whatsoever, uh, which is, of course, the normal uh, motivation for the reduction in, in, in the reserves are. are. Well, Professor, always great to get your comments. It'll be interesting to see inflation numbers next week and, uh, and get your take. Thanks for uh, yeah, we'll, 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 the show. We'll, we'll definitely uh, discuss them next Friday. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. I'm uh, going to turn the conversation over to Brian Westbury, who's chief economist at First Trust. Brian, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, Jeremy. Great to be with you. What, maybe you could react. Anything you heard from the professor to start? Any uh, how's how's your view of what's happening from the Fed, from inflation? Give us your top-down forecast. What you think is happening? Sure. Um, yeah, I don't disagree uh, with with uh, many things, I guess some little nuance points that I would, that I'll make a little bit of a difference on, but let me start by just talking about the overview for 2022. And and we knew this uh, coming into the year and it's getting more clear every day that goes by, uh, but the, the federal reserve is going to be reversing course. They're going to do quantitative tightening. They will be raising rates. So, so if, you, if we think of it from an economic point of view, that's a headwind to the economy, or at least it's less of a tailwind uh, than it was last year or the year before. Uh, at the same time, we're going to have a smaller deficit this year. I'm not a big Keynesian at all, uh, but we know that the, the government borrowed money, printed money to buy bonds, and then handed that money out so that people could spend. And that spending, that def- those deficits are going to be smaller this year in 2022. And that's also, if, you, if we think of it, kind of a headwind for economic growth. Uh, but there is also a pretty big tailwind as well, and that is the opening up after COVID. Uh, it seems to be proceeding at a pretty sharp pace. We added 1.6 million jobs in the first three months of the year. Uh, we expect somewhere between four and five million for the total year. So net, net, net. When I look at uh, the economy this year, GDP growing about two and a half percent, adding four plus million jobs. I believe profits, overall profits, not for obviously for every company, but overall profits will go up about ten percent. So for this year, I'm in agreement with Professor Siegel. Uh, I don't see a recession in 2022. 2023 and 2024 do, uh, they, they, they're a little less clear. And, and I think the odds of recession will probably rise. Uh, then real quickly, uh, housing, uh, is, it, yes, interest rates are going up, uh, but we have underbuilt housing since 2007. So even if new home sales or housing sales slow down because of high mortgage rates, I think I still think we're going to see a a really big building in apartments and rents will be rising with inflation. I know that's all also a problem, but the point is we need to build more houses. So I don't think housing will slow down uh, much at all in the next couple of years. And then finally, on on the Fed, the Federal Reserve has changed the way it it manages monetary policy. We used to use a system of reserve scarcity. In other words, they would uh, manipulate the amount of reserves, and then that would move up uh, short-term interest rates. Now, we use a system of plentiful reserves, if, if you can kind of think of it that way. There's all these excess reserves in the banking system, and the Fed just sets the interest rates. They tell banks what the rate is going to be. And so as of right now, the amount of money in the economy is divorced or decoupled from the level of interest rates. So the Fed can raise rates, but that doesn't mean 
that monetary policy gets tight. And the only way to fix the inflation is to take some money out of the system. And if they don't do that, uh, then then we will see inflation continue at a higher level than uh, and for longer than a lot of people think. And I th- that's my highest conviction call, because for the Fed to do what it takes to get the money out, uh, they, they, they believe they can engineer a soft landing. But that's a really, really hard thing to do. So if they take too much money out, we get a hard landing. If they don't take enough out, uh, then we we see more inflation, and and I I think they're going to err in in spite of their tough rhetoric, they're going to end up erring on the side of inflation because it's really hard and scary to fight it because you end up hurting the economy. So we'll we'll see whether they have the intestinal fortitude to do what it takes, uh, but as of right now, I'm count me as skeptical. Right. It's easy, like just following what they've done for the last decade to say that's the path of uh, what we expected. But they've also never they haven't had the inflation pressures that they've had now forever. I mean, so it's it's hard to know how they respond in this environment. Um, As you see, you know, Siegel is like one of the most hawkish on inflation and and aggressive thinking that inflation will be much higher than most people think. What what's your outlook on on the inflationary pressures in the system? How high do you think inflation will be for how long? Like, what's your sense? Sure. You, you, in order, I, I'm a I'm a Friedmanite, and I I know to bash Milton Friedman is you know it's it's politically correct these days. Um, I I still consider him to be one of the greatest minds in economics uh, ever to have lived, and he taught us about money. And what he told me, uh, in essence, is to watch M2, watch the M2 money supply. And between February of 2020 and today, so the, the beginning of the pandemic to today, that, that M2 money supply is up 40%. Uh, it's growing right now in February. It was 12% over last year, uh, which, by the way, are, are the kind of the, the money growth numbers we haven't seen since the 70s. Yeah. Um, and so that's the difference between this QE, the quantitative easing or, uh, uh, of, of, of the pandemic, versus the quantitative easing during the subprime crisis, is that the first QE, QE one, two, three, during the crisis, that didn't turn into M2. And partly that was because we were regulating banks like crazy, uh, more liquidity requirements, more capital requirements. And now banks are so well capitalized, have so much liquidity that when the Fed boosted its balance sheet, it went straight into M2 growth. So to answer your question directly, I do think that part of the inflation, we're going to peak here at over 8%. I think we will slow down because some of this did come from the the Eastern European, Russian-Ukraine war. Uh, some of it's because of supply chain. But a lot of it, and I think this is where Professor Siegel and I agree, comes from the rise in M2. And, exactly. and, and that's what people aren't paying attention to. So if I had to guess, I would say 5% inflation for, for the next four or five years, unless the Fed gets things under control. And that's why I believe commodities uh, and and uh, investing in the things that did well in the 70s right now, materials, industrials, and they're also kind of in the value part of the of the market as well. I think that is a that's one of the key reasons that we're seeing a rotation in the market. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Brian Westbury, Chief Economist, First Trust Advisors. Interesting, Brian and the professor are, are playing from the same monetary uh, background of Friedman there. Uh, so you guys are talking the same the same book there. The um, If you were to say, Brian, when we've had you on in the past, you do a lot of valuation work comparing rates to earnings yields and things like that. Yep. And, and if you if you were to sort of say, where is the market today? How do you put that to a top-down forecast for the market? All these pressures on rates and earnings being positive. Like, what's your your evaluation work tell you today? Yeah, that's this is a great uh, great uh, topic, Jeremy. And I'll I'll 
you know, talking about math in in words sometimes uh, can be confusing. So let me try to be as clear as possible. Our model is relatively simple. We take overall profits in the economy and then we discount them or the math is just divide them by the 10 year treasury yield. And so you can imagine that if the if the 10 year treasury is really low, then that means that P.E. ratios can be high. Uh, and, and if you go back to 2009, when the Fed really started this this low interest rate environment, they pulled the whole yield curve down. And and from 2009 all the way through 2019, early 20, uh, the market was 50 or 60 percent undervalued using our model. And and that's why when we go back over that time, you know, people have called me a perma bull and all kinds of things. But right. but when the market when the market is saying we're 50, 60, 70 percent undervalued and it goes on for 10 years, I don't know what else to do. Uh, but be bullish. And, and we were. Uh, and then the Federal Reserve, obviously, in the pandemic, uh, reduced the whole yield curve again. And earnings popped because we had these big deficits and all this money printing and profits went up and interest rates stayed low. So that's why we've seen this great market. Well, now, if we take a, a two and a half percent tenure, which is roughly where we are, and we could we can uh, talk about tenths of a basis point uh, or 10, 10 basis points in a minute. But if we take two and a half percent on the on the tenure with fourth quarter earnings, uh, it says that the market uh, S&P is worth a little like fifty two hundred. And so I would argue we're still undervalued. And this year, with 10 percent profit growth, uh, that's why I'm saying, look, the economy is going to grow. We're going to add jobs. The reopening trade is here. So I don't think the market is done yet. Now, to show how sensitive we are, if we go to a 3 percent tenure, then the market, uh, according to our model, is slightly overvalued. Now, that doesn't mean we sell off and crash. But we are, we are now way closer to fair value than we were. So it's getting trickier. And what I tell advisors, tell investors, is that now asset allocation, it always matters. Don't, don't hear me wrong. Always matters. But it really matters today. And that's why this inflation trade, I think, is a way to uh, protect assets uh, in these next couple of years because we have lots of questions about how fast the Fed's going to go, whether we will get more spending or not, uh, how the election turns out, how things what what happens in Eastern Europe. So so inflation is the one constant, I think, of all of those things. And that's why I want my portfolio to protect me against that. And it also helps me allocate in a way. Uh, when uh, for a market that's much closer to fair value than it has been for the past decade. I, you know, one of the questions I'm not sure I've asked you when we've had before, if, if you were to say, um, you know, I think it's certainly true on, on any valuation model, you would say the U.S. is relatively more expensive than any of these foreign markets. Uh, and then you have interest rates in, in Europe, which are rising, but still like, you know, close to zero. Uh if, when you, if you were to value Europe as an example, would you, you would you base it off of the ten year in here? Would you base it off the German Bund? How are you looking at international asset allocation today in light of U.S. valuations and these sort of global rates? Yeah, we have tried to extend our model to other countries. However, and and I, I'm not I'm not trying to bash European countries here, but so but it's just, data is is harder to come by, uh, is, is what I mean. I don't mean they're calculating it wrong. It's just harder to come by. Historical data, we use over 65 years of profit and interest rate data in the U.S., and I just can't get that for a lot of the European indices. Um, so, But we, if, we, if we sort of look at it through the same lens, if you will, Europe is a lot cheaper. And then, and then the last, uh, the, the, the second point I would make about that is one of the reasons that the U.S. is more expensive than Europe 
is that we have in terms of in uh, the market uh, is because we have all the tech companies. Uh, and yeah. so and they're the ones that have traded at higher multiples. Uh, their market cap as a share of the S&P has gone up dramatically. And if you look at Europe, they're much more industrial, uh, more manufacturing, more, you know, less high tech related. So I would uh, if if you're looking at value, you're looking at materials, industrials and ways to protect against inflation, uh, you know, the European stock markets, it, it just in general, on average, kind of fit that mold. So so I, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to being over there. Those stocks are cheaper. But the reason is, is because our tech stocks are relatively expensive versus everything else. So yeah. I, I like value. And that's and so Europe to me right now is it it it's kind of blinking a little bit of a green light as a place to uh, to to not pay too much for future growth if if it slows down. Very interesting. As, as you think about the uh, rate cycle, um, as you're looking ahead to where this cycle pe- peaks out, like how how high do you think the Fed's going to get through the cycle? And, and how, how do you think the, the long rate of your model is going to go up to? And where, where will this, yeah. that 10-year peak? This is, uh, this is the gazillion, gazillion <laughs> dollar question, Jeremy. Yes. And, and I, have, I, I, I have two answers, if you will. And, and the, the way I think about this, the way I think investors ought to think about it, is number one, how, how far is the Fed willing to go? <laughs> and because if if we go back to the one of the things I I said a few minutes ago is that we we now have plentiful reserves and the Fed sets the interest rate. It's not like it used to be where the Fed moved reserves up and down and that moved interest rates up and down. So the Fed just decides what they're going to be. And if I'm right and we are in a five percent inflationary environment. And I get it. The CPI is up seven, nine. After we get uh, the next, the March numbers, we're going to be up over eight percent because of uh, high oil prices. But but I, I, after you adjust for the war, adjust for supply chains, I think we're in about a five percent inflation environment. And and in that environment, back if we look back in history, the the short term interest rate should be six percent, and so should the ten year. So. So the question is, is the Fed willing to, to go there? And as of right now, I would argue that they, the Fed still believes inflation is transitory. They also know that the market expects more inflation, so they're trying to be talk tough. But we'll see if they can be that tough. And, you know, this reminds me in a way of the 1970s. The Fed knew it had an inflation problem, but it kept blaming it on one-off things. You know, they would blame it on a weak dollar. They would blame it on a drought in the Midwest. They would blame it on OPEC. And and they never had the courage to really fight it because every time they tried to fight it, unemployment would go up, the economy would slow down, the stock market would go down, and then they would lower rates again. And so we'll we'll see because they talk tough right now. But when when the economy slows, when the market goes down and it, and it very easily could with the kind of interest rates I'm talking about, uh, that's when the Fed, will they stay the course or will they react and, and follow another easy monetary policy? So, so right now, I think the dangers are increasing, but even if they raise rates to two and a quarter, two and a half this year, which seems to be what the market expects, that's still not a tight monetary policy. And that's why I'm still relatively optimistic this year. Not as not as optimistic or bullish as I was, say, five years ago. Uh, but I still think we're going to have growth, and the Fed's not going to tighten too much this year. It's next year and the year after that I start to worry. Well, very interesting. They, they, the Fed seems to have forgotten their Friedman uh Chops there. They seem to not be talking about the money supply. Um, that's what Siegel's been saying. You've been saying it. Very interesting conversation, Brian. Uh, thank you for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Thank you, Jeremy. Great to be with you. 
for the second half. We have Brent Donnelly, president of Spectra Markets, also the author of Alpha Trader and the Art of Currency Trading. He writes daily the AMFX, a uh, must-read macro piece on cross markets, currency markets. I've gotten to know Brent in Maine, uh, Cam Kotak, uh, where we became good friends. We have Kevin Flanagan, who's the head of fixed income for Wisdom Tree to talk the Fed with us and rates. Uh, Brent, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Hey, Jeremy, quite uh, quite an intro. You're better at marketing me than I am at marketing myself. Uh, very good. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. And Kev, always good to get you on here. Um, I was reading Brent's Twitter feed this week, um, and Brent was comparing the Fed to an alcoholic with a bottle of Jack in their hand. Uh, hard to believe them wanting to get sober, Brent. Let's talk this alcoholic. Are they going to sober up? What do you think is happening? What do you think about their plans, the minutes? How is the market taking this Jack Daniels? Sure. So I think the interesting dichotomy is that I do believe that they're sobering up, and I do believe the hawkish message. But I think it's been very hard for the market to really absorb it because there's this inertia in the psychology that comes from, you know, they turn more hawkish dropping transitory in, you know, last year around November. And but the thing is, they were still buying assets for three months. So when you see a central bank saying, hey, we're taking inflation seriously, we know CPI is at 7 percent. And yet they're also out in the market buying assets. That's why I made the analogy to to the alcoholic with the bottle of Jack in their hand. It's like you don't really believe that person when they say that they're going to get sober because the bottle of Jack's still in their hand. So now I feel like I believe the message, but I don't think it's really gotten through to asset prices yet. So to me, like the simplest framework since 2010 has just been is is liquidity increasing or is liquidity decreasing? And that's been a pretty good framework for for risky assets. And now liquidity is decreasing, but financial conditions actually haven't tightened all that much. And I think part of it is this inertia from average inflation targeting and from the Fed just being dovish for so long. And also from, you know, we've had 2% inflation for a long time. So I think that people haven't quite woken up to, you know, "Mm, what's that light in the distance? Oh, is that a train? I don't know. It might not be a train. It's it's a train, um, and I think financial conditions are, are going to tighten significantly, and you're going to get something that feels a lot like 2018. It's not catastrophic. I mean, some people are trying to make um, comparisons more to 2007 with the commodity um, squeeze triggering a demand destruction kind of problem, and I know I'm sympathetic to that idea, but I, I'm I'm more in like the, that it's more like 2018 where it's more that financial conditions are going to tighten significantly, and that creates a lot of headwinds for, for risky assets. Now, now, even people with above-average inflation, like we were just talking with Brian Westbury, who had an above-average inflation, there's, there's skepticism. The Fed has the fortitude. He called it intestinal fortitude to make the hard move. Is this alcoholic going to like just throw it out and go cold turkey and nothing, no more? They're going to really get it serious? Is your view their inflation is the new fight? I do believe that because um, partly because of the politics, right? There's there's really only two presidents. Um, I mean, as far back as I know, the history of U.S. financial markets that um, have ever wanted higher rates, right? That was uh, Carter and Biden are the only two presidents that have actually wished for higher rates. And I think uh, although the Fed is in theory an independent organization, they're responding to the same variables as everyone else, right? The the so inflation is the story, not employment. In fact, you know, employment is is a problem the other way. There's not enough workers. So the skew is very strongly that way. And so I do believe I think the Fed will tighten until something breaks, which is sort of the cliche. Um, but I feel like people have a hard time believing that because of this sort of psychological inertia and just being so used to the Fed put being there. And to me, it's more of a Fed call now. So the, as long as um, credit and stocks do okay, that just gives the Fed more room to hike. So what you're seeing is essentially the Fed will hike as much as the market will let them. And so people have been trying to play this like, oh, it's all priced in kind of game since we had four hikes priced in. Then we got five, six, seven. Now we have eight. 
And the reason that that framework doesn't work is that the Fed in tightening cycles very often follows the market. So trying to guess what the Fed does and then saying, okay, five hikes is too many is the wrong framework. What the Fed's going to do is do whatever they're given by the market. So in March, they, you know, there was a possibility of 50, but only 25 was priced, so they hiked 25. In May, 50 is going to be priced. I mean, presumably, anyways, I'm, I'm guessing the meeting's on May 4th, um, and they're going to go 50. So I think they're essentially going to take whatever the market will give them. And so the way that works is they keep going until essentially until things start to break. And I don't think we're anywhere close to that point, uh, considering where real rates and, and and actual rates are. Let me bring in Kevin for this because he loves fixed income, loves the Fed. Kev, do you do you like them following the markets? What do you what's your sense here, or how do you want to jump in? No, I mean I, I I agree with Brent. They they are a follower of the market. I mean Powell showed that during the last rate hike cycle. Remember in 2018 they. They gave you the last quarter point, and the the dot plot showed a couple more for 2019. Stock market threw a hissy fit, and the next thing you know, they completely reversed course, and they started lowering rates in July of 2019. So, um, you know, just looking at the playbook or or what has Powell given us in the past, that that makes sense. You know, what Brett, what you were saying, the the Fed's going to take what the market gives them. I mean, that, that's a far bigger debate as to whether or not you should be setting monetary policy like that. But my, my I, I think, interesting aspect to all of this is the balance sheet. How is the balance sheet going to work into all of this? And what was fascinating, you know, Jared, we spoke about it before that, you know, we had this inverted yield curve for a cup of coffee uh, earlier this week, right? And we were saying, well, no one's even talking about quantitative tightening. Next thing you know, Brainerd makes her comments, and here we are plus 20 basis points, twos, tens. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, that it's not just going to be, I think, where is terminal Fed funds going to be? Where's the tenure going in all this? You know, I mean, there's plenty of discussions, and I think Brian was talking about it earlier, right, that his model was showing, you know, what happens with a 3% tenure. Well, the last time we got to two and a quarter, two and a half on funds was 2018, and the 10-year right before then was at three and a quarter. So if you look at three and a quarter, that's another 55 basis points from where we are right now. Is that when the Fed has to cry uncle? How does the stock market respond to that? And, you know, Kevin, I think a really interesting thing that you pointed out there was the reaction to Brainerd. So when that speech came out, I think a lot of analysts were saying, well, you know, Williams kind of said this stuff already. We kind of know they're going in May. And yet there was a huge market reaction just because it was ratifying something that kind of that we already knew. And I think that points to this idea that the market is still a little bit in denial of what's going on. And, you know, each of each speech and each event, which May 4th Fed being one of them, um, is going to be the, a, a continuing reminder to the market that, the dovish Fed is gone. The, the average inflation targeting, you know, I mean, whatever. If this is winning, I don't want to win. But they're, they, you know, mission accomplished on the, on the average. Whatever look back you want to use, average inflation is way above two percent. Even if you, even if you take the average of the year over year over the last three years, even that's over two percent. That includes some some numbers around zero. So, um, I think the Brainerd, the market reaction. So in FX. The dollar absolutely ripped after that, and there was quite a bit of head scratching, considering that it wasn't anything epically surprising in there. It just more was like solidifying something that we kind of knew already, and I think that speaks to the fact that there's room for the market still to react um, in, in terms of a higher dollar and potentially uh, weaker risky assets. I, I want to, given you wrote the book on the art of currency, you do a lot of currency work. I have a shared a lot of interest in that. And most people talk equities, they talk bonds. We don't often get a lot of people who care about currency. And partly it's been such a boring place. This is one of my charts was just currency vol had collapsed for the last uh, five, six years because all rates were at zero. Everybody had the same policy. Um, is currency is going to get more interesting? Like, what do you think is happening in the dollar and anything you would point out that's happening here? Sure, absolutely. So that's kind of the nature of FX as well, is that 
there's periods of excitement and periods of the doldrums. And like you said, when generally the biggest driver of currencies is relative interest rate differentials. So there's many other drivers, but the main one is usually whatever rates are doing. So if there's a big spread in rates, you know, then, then money flows to the place where the rates are highest with a bunch of other kind of caveats. And so when everybody in the world had rates of zero, there's really not much to do in FX. But now that has completely changed. So the most stark example is that the Bank of Japan are still actually buying assets in order to defend their 25 basis point cap in yields. So right now what you have is in about a month, the Fed's going to be selling assets while the Bank of Japan is still buying assets. And so that has been reflected. You know, dollar-yen has exploded in the last month or two or last few months um, from 115 to 125. And that's a direct response to the relative monetary policy. So any central bank that can that's remaining on hold in this inflation environment, their currency is getting absolutely smoked. And then elsewhere, you know, you have a, also a big terms of trade shock happening um, can be positive or negative. So, for example, Australia, um, you know, has is exporting a lot, a lot of LNG and coal and all these things that have exploded in price. And meanwhile, European demand um, is having a lot of trouble being satisfied because of Russia and the you know, primary supplier of energy to Europe is Russia. And so you have kind of a demand shock in Europe and, um, and a positive terms of trade shock in Australia. So that cross, so the euro against the Aussie has absolutely collapsed lately because all the, all the money's flowing into Australia and out of Europe. So you're seeing a lot of things going on um, in terms of, so relative interest rate differentials, and then whether this commodity shock is good or bad, right? So it's good for some countries and it's bad for others. And you're seeing that reflected in FX as well. And then overlaid on top of that is a much, much bigger picture thing, which is the sanctions on Russia and the, the, the SWIFT ban um, has created this environment where people are starting to wonder if FX reserves are money. And so there's that's a bid under gold as well because people are thinking, okay, fiat currencies being held in bank accounts aren't quite as, as money as we thought they were. So is there going to be a switch now out of fiat currency and, and into harder assets? And gold would be the number one there. And in theory, that could benefit um, other sort of gold-like assets like Bitcoin, although to this point, that has not benefited Bitcoin. It's a lot, a lot there to follow up on. So, like it on currencies, it's not like a stock where you could say there's a price to earnings ratio and you get a set of cash flows. Now you could say, well, these interest rates are sort of like that. That you got rates and you could do a valuation model on these rates. And is what's driving the yen? Let's take the yen, which is at one of the more interesting levels in history. Back to this 125 level. Uh, I think you also put a chart on where an extension of 125 would go if it followed a certain pattern. Like, is it actual real money people who are like a Japanese insurance company who used to be buying bonds and hedging the currency risk so that they didn't take that extra risk? They're taking those hedges off. Is it just speculators, hedge fund people? What's happening that's driving this yen weaker? So it's much more real money than than speculators. So there's a bunch of things driving it. One of them is uh, Japan is a heavy oil importer. So the more that oil goes up, the more dollars they have to buy to buy their oil because oil is priced in dollars. So that's one. The other thing is that Japanese um, savings are an absolutely massive pool of money. And that money at the margin wants higher rates, right? It, you know, if you're a Japanese saver or... Japanese post office, which is a very large uh, organization where people have a lot of savings, you want to maximize the return on your portfolio, and you're not going to get that in in Japanese, like in JGBs, which are capped at 25 basis points. So a year, you know, in the, heart, in the deepest part of COVID, whether you bought U.S. two-year two-year bonds or JGBs didn't matter. Now two-year yields are you know up to two two plus percent. You say, hmm, maybe I can get 2% of my money instead of zero. So you start to prefer U.S. assets over domestic assets. So that's generally what the flow has been. There, there's always a speculative element to dollar-yen. Um, speculators tend to like to play the momentum in dollar-yen because it can be an excellent trade and, and 
probably one of the biggest hedge fund trades in history was the Abenomics trade when Japan devalued the yen from 75 to 125 um, from 2012 to 2015. And so the interesting thing now is we actually just made the exact same high as we made on the Abenomics trade in 2015 or right around the turn of 2016. So people are watching that level because at that time, um, the, the MOF and the BOJ actually started to say, okay, enough is enough. Um, we don't really want dollar yen to go higher at, one, at 125. And this time we got to 125 and it was a pretty spicy move. We went from 115 to 125 quite quickly. And the response from, from the MOF and the BOJ was pretty muted. So they kind of made a couple of comments like, we don't want this thing out of control. But to me, what they did was more that they ratified the move and said, you know, further move isn't a real disaster. In fact, Kuroda said a week yet still has many benefits for Japan. So to me, that means we can make another leg, um, like up to 130 or 135 in the relatively short term, because there's really nothing stopping it right now. Um, it's to me, that's the path of least resistance is, is a higher dollar, um, especially against dollar yen, against the yen. What's interesting, some of these EM currencies, like uh, a basket of EM currencies is, is higher, the dollar is higher. There's like certain things that are weaker. Um, anything in EM currency land you like besides Russia? <laughs> I mean, that's the... Uh, uh, yeah, Russia is untradeable. But um, so the the most popular trades have been the, the currencies that were very early to hike rates and now have very high rates. So, for example, Brazil... Uh, I don't really have a strong view at this point because they, those currencies have appreciated a lot, but a lot of money has, for example, flowed into Brazil looking for the for what is very very what are very high rates, and so that that carry has attracted people, especially because the list of currencies that you can buy that in EM has gotten a little bit shorter. Um, essentially, Turkey is untradeable now because it, of the disorderly devaluation that's happened. Uh, Russia is untradeable because of the war. Then people don't really want to touch um, emerging Europe like um, um, Czech and stuff like that and Poland just because of the proximity to Russia. And, you know, there, there is a tail risk that something NATO gets involved in this in, in Russia, and that would be very bad for those countries. So the list of qualified or, or interesting carry trades in EM is a little shorter than usual. So that's meant that Brazil specifically has uh, has attracted massive inflows, and you know that's been a massive performer. Kev, you want to jump in here? Any any views or or, or questions for Brent? Well, the one thing that I was you know looking at during the course of this week, there've been reports, and I, I've even had just conversations on it, looking where rates have gone. That all of a sudden I'm, I'm seeing some asset allocation shifts among people that they wanted to start going long duration post Brainerd. And, and Brent, just curious your thoughts on, you know, do you want to be early to that party or do you want to be late to that party going long duration? Oh, man, I want to be late. So th this is the thing that I kind of referenced earlier, which is playing the too much is priced in game, you know, like playing, okay, we've moved enough or uh, too far, too fast. And I don't think that's a good game to play when inflation's at 7%. And you've been in a secular downtrend in yields for 30 years. I think it's more the kind of environment where you want to use your imagination and say, you know, what's the craziest thing that could happen? And okay, maybe at that point I'll, I'll try to take the other side on an overshoot. But I mean, we were at three percent in tens not very long ago, and, and in a much much different environment of, of secular, you know, the new normal, Larry Summers kind of stuff. So I, I definitely. I'm not interested at all in, in long duration. I, I just think it the tail is all the other way. Um, and it's just so, I, to me, it's so early uh, that I would not want to take that. Yeah, Kev, good reminder. You, you mentioned to me that one of the largest model providers out there, one of the largest asset managers that, that people might track, did make a, a long duration bond play thinking it moved quickly. So it's very interesting. Um, how high Brent do you think this 10 year can get? If you were to say from target levels, you do a lot of these kind of level analysis, where do you think the 10 year ultimately is going? If you had to guess. 
a level that really stands out in my mind is 3%. Um, I know we went a little bit above there uh, at, at a few times, but I remember that on the taper tantrum. Uh, there was actually a massive deal that printed right at 3%, and that was a high. So that level really sticks in my mind. I, in 2018, I think we went to 320 or 325. I, I would say that is a pretty well-defined area where that is a reasonable area to, to kind of think, okay, maybe that's where we run out of gas. I mean, in the last, you'd have to go back to 2011 to, to find a time when we were above three 325. So I think it will be tough to get above there, especially because there is kind of this view out there in the market that at some point, the high price of commodities, high inflation, and the very negative consumer sentiment, negative business sentiment in Europe, a lot of problems in China with, uh, so the cre- the whole credit cycle turned ages ago. And so I think at some point, you maybe do take the other side above three, somewhere above three. To me, that's probably overshoot territory would be like 3.0, 3.2 zone is where maybe I'd, I'd probably stick a toe in the water. Kev, you're a Fibo trader, right? You like the Fibonacci levels? You, you're telling me 325 was, was your number? Yeah, it's right in line with what Brent was saying. You know, I mean, I'm just looking at this right now. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide right now in the Treasury market. And just looking at what tips have done real quickly, since March 7th, 10-year tip yields have increased 90 basis points. So you're at now negative 17 basis points. And just a, a quick kind of rhetorical question. In the last rate hike cycle in 2018, they were plus. 1.2%. Just to give you a sense, you know, I'm not saying that's where you're going to end up, but this thing has more legs to run. So, you know, Jerry, we've had the conversation, treasury floating rate notes, baby, that's where you need to be. It's a very stable thing. Weekly resets on those floating rate treasuries of one of the few places that is not down in bond land this year um, when everything is down. Brent, Spectra, F. Well, AMFX, where else can they find you if they're interested in more information on following your work? Sure. SpectraMarkets.com. That's where I am. Very good. Uh, and it's always good to get your, uh, get your takes. You can follow them on Twitter. Brent Donnelly, Kevin Flanagan is on Twitter. I'm Jeremy D. Schwartz. Um, you know, you can follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tukes. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.